G'day and welcome to Overdrive, a program where we let our thoughts wander over issues to do with cars and transport. I'm David Brown and in this program we put up three Facebook posts about vehicles we had seen and there's been over 40,000 people reached. So we get some comments and feedback when we discuss the matters with our good friend Fred Brain. These include an MG with an unusual fastback and very rare wheels, a Chrysler Crossfire from the first decade of this century that Jeremy Clarkson said looked like a dog pooing, and a work of art in the new building of the New South Wales Art Gallery. It was a homage to the Bugatti 35. It elicited a number of comments, including one arty-farty full of buzzwords response. I think it might have been a bit tongue-in-cheek. We also road test the Great Wall Motors aura and ponder whether electrification might make noddy cars more appealing. And finally, we interview an international transport planning expert on his comments on the HS2. Now, that's the UK's latest very fast train. The expert reminisces about this project and some of the great catastrophes, as well as reflecting on some other projects he's done around the world. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or the socials, podcast, Facebook, YouTube or Instagram and look for Cars Transport Culture. This program was originally broadcast on the 20th of January, 2024. A little bit of feedback. We've put a couple of posts up on the social pages, Facebook, Instagram and such, and they were about some unusual cars we've seen. Well, to talk about them, we have on the line our mechanical engineer and historic aficionado, Fred Brain. G'day, Fred. (laughs) Hello, Dave. Now, they had an MG I saw at Pie in the Sky, the little cafe on the old Pacific Highway north of Sydney, which had a bubble fastback to it. It looked certainly not common in any way. How did you find a look of it? I've never actually seen one of those before, and it would appear as though they weren't very common, but it wasn't a one-off either. Making a fastback on a car, a lot of people dream about that. Someone said it looked very Jaguar E-type and that he loved the style. Others said, no, no, never. I did like Kerry Lau, who said, I had a fastback VW for my first car. I called it my E-type. Putting a fastback on the car of some pretty ordinary vehicles was a way of trying to make them look more than they were. Pretty a fair point. When you think back, there were, I think it was Buckle, Bill Buckle did some mini conversions and did a fastback mini. They're as ugly as sin. Uh, yeah, they weren't the prettiest looking car. I think an original squareback mini did did look a whole lot better. It just made it look like the front was designed by a different person from the back, which yes. clearly sounds like it was. But this particular one that we saw now, one of the people making comment on social media referred to a UK person. Who was that and what did they say? Yeah, they referred to a chap who um, was in the UK and I suspect worked for British Leyland. His name was David Knowles, but his comment was that this is an Australian hardtop which was made and sold locally 
in that country, i.e. Australia, in order to satisfy demand for an MGB coupe, as the factory MGB GT was neither manufactured nor sold in Australia. The open MGB Roadster was was the only vehicle that was sold here as an MG. I think I saw a few around. Would they have been imported privately? The MGB GTs, the genuine ones? Yeah. Yes, yeah. Yeah, I mean, given we're talking vehicles from, what, the mid-60s, they're pretty old, so certainly quite a few probably would have been brought out here as personal imports or people moving from England brought their MG with them, I, I would say, too. So a number of people did write in about their other cars that had had a similar cosmetic surgery, isn't it? What did David Purton say? His comment was, I had a TR4A, which had a dove, so-called dove in inverted commas, tail conversion similar to this with knockoff hubs, had them on an MGA and MGC. Can't remember what they cost back then, but yes, what a joy. I think he might have been referring to the knockoff hubs. He was. I spoke to Chris, our expert in Jaguars, which these knockoff hubs often appear on things like D-types and things like that. Right. Apparently now, I think they're $1,000 each or something. They're very Ooh. expensive. They are the ones that you may have seen in very old black and white films where they're hitting them with a hammer to, to take the one middle spine off. It looks almost like a star type of thing to be able to, to change the wheel in racing and put fresh tyres on. Now, there was a couple of people that also referred to their experiences with MG. You've got a comment from John Brauns. His comment was, I, he hired one in the UK for two weeks back in the 70s. It was a very low mileage car, good car, but it did develop some electrical problems once right in the middle of London. Bloody embarrassing. The horn just decided to blast on its own. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, maybe he had something to it. But Richard Reeve said, my late mate Peter lived in Benidorm and wanted an MGB GT. So I found him one in Manchester, a 1973 chrome bumper in white and well restored. So he flew to Manchester, purchased the car, drove to his brother's in Cambridge, stayed overnight for the day. They always tell a long story, don't they? He continues on, stayed over there, then caught the Santander ferry, then drove it to Benidorm. A 50-year-old car, and the only breakdown was the Santander ferry where the engine stopped. So I thought that was a, a rather <laughs> nice reflection. We did put up other pictures. We put up a Chrysler Crossfire, a vehicle from the 2004 to 2007 or nine. I think it was built. But it was a time when Chrysler was in bed with Mercedes. Well, in bed, let's just say they had a relationship, but I don't think it had much activity in terms of uh, communication. I don't think they consummated their relationship very much at all. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just leave one comment uh, that Peter Barnwell sent in, a, a motoring journalist colleague. He said that Jeremy Clarkson described it as a car looking like a dog pooing, <laughs> particularly the coupe version. It has sort of a humped back to it. I quite like the look of it. They were kind of reasonably distinctive. It was almost an E-type looking rear end on them, but uh, I guess a bit more abbreviated, which... Hence led to the uh, the dog analogy. Justin Conkey 
uh, wrote in a rather long thing, but uh, I'll pull out one point about it. He said it did tend to snap oversteer when the traction control was off. Well, in his case, he said it was actually not working. I can refer to that. And uh, I was going, just starting out at traffic lights, turning right in the wet, whoosh, out went the tail. But in fact, my neighbour's son happened to be in a car nearby and looking at it and couldn't stop raving about uh, the car control. It was at very slow speed and really represented a car that wasn't uh, handling as clearly and as it might, and so getting into a skid, as I say, at very slow speed. The other picture we put up was a Bugatti at the art gallery, not an actual car, but a, an artwork. And I, I noted that it was perhaps the ultimate accolade when your car is reflected in a piece of art. We're talking about, of course, the Bugatti 35, a beautiful old pre-war roadster-looking vehicle. Do you remember, well, not remember those, but do you like the look of them, Fred? They're quite distinctive and iconic. I won't say it's a look that I'm in love with in terms of motor vehicles, but uh, in terms of uh, such an iconic vehicle from the era, they, they are, uh, I guess, perhaps the most iconic from that time. I have tried to try and link art with motoring as much as possible, and I think to do it still without becoming too pretentious about the whole thing, we did get one response that said, and I quote, that is an interesting piece of art there. The tension that is created from the juxtaposition of the subject with the object lens, we as the observer see in quite something. Uh, I asked Dean, who's an artist, uh, whether he could interpret that. Uh, from art speak to regular language, and all he did was send me a link to a internet site called Arty Bollocks, which will generate these sorts of comments at the touch of a button, which have absolutely no meaning but are full of the right sort of art buzzwords. I quite enjoyed that. <laughs> Fred, always wonderful to talk to you. I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. <laughs> no worries. No, good to chat. And that's Fred Brain, our mechanical engineer and historic aficionado in terms of old cars. Certainly, he owns a few old cars as well, some of them of which have been classics. And he joins us periodically and as often as we can get him. You're listening to Overdrive. Over the years, a number of car manufacturers have tried to produce small city-type cars which look a bit like a noddy vehicle. Boggle-eyed front headlights, a bubble shape, giving an overall frog-like appearance. We did a story a year or so ago on the restoration of a Nissan Figaro, which has such a look. As did the Daihatsu Copen. Both were characterised by very small engines, limited space and very limited performance. Now in the 90s, Mazda had the 121, which did not have the round headlights, but very much a rounded bubble style. In fact, it was known as the bubble car. Even earlier, still from 1958, was the Mako 500. But more recently, Nissan produced their Micra, and they are still producing the Duke. Great Wall Motors is now offering their Aura, O-R-A, vehicle, which is all-electric and has the bug-eyed look at the front and the rounded shape overall. 
But modern technology and electrification and very efficient space design have made this a much more than a quirky roundabout. The Aura is known in other markets as the Good Cat or the Funky Cat Aura, but not here, thankfully. I think that would diminish its image as a car for a wide market. It comes in three models, the Standard Range, the Long Range and the GT. The Standard Range has a 48 kilowatt hour battery and is rated to have a range of 310 kilometres. Not huge, but the Long Range model has the bigger 63 kilowatt hour battery and has a rated range of 420 kilometres. The GT has the bigger battery and a few more features such as electric hands-free tailgate sunroof and heated and cooled front seats. The vehicle can take moderately quick charging up to 48 kilowatts. Now with a power output of 126 kilowatts delivered by an electric powertrain, the performance, particularly off the line, is way beyond the little buzz boxes that this shape of vehicle once represented. It has an extensive range of safety features and achieved a five-star ANCAP rating in 2022, which is very recent. It is currently one of the cheapest, if not the cheapest, electric vehicle on the market. The standard range small battery vehicle has a drive-away price of just $40,600 up to $43,000, depending on which state you are in. The cheapest, of course, is the ACT and the Northern Territory, and the most expensive is Western Australia. You add $6,000 to get the extended range and a further $6,000 to get the GT. Clearly, if your budget can stretch the extra $6,000, then the longer-range battery pack would be the preferred option, if only to give you more peace of mind. The GT is only if you like those sorts of extras. I'm not fussed on sunroofs, but cooled seats. Gee, that's tempting. All variants come with a 7-year unlimited kilometre warranty, 5 years fixed-price servicing, and 5 years roadside assistance. The Aura is classified as a small passenger car. Now, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Did our road tester, Evan Jones, like the look? Yeah. Yeah, I think the Duke actually tries too hard, to be honest. That's a personal thing. No, this is a... It doesn't get out there and yell, here I am. It's it's, uh, it's a fun little vehicle, quite good for the city. Visibility was good in it. We've come to expect some exhilarating performance from electric vehicles, particularly with acceleration. How does the Great Wall Motors Aura fit that image? You know, I didn't test it in Eco. Its standard uh, setting was quite good, and its sport setting was marvellous. It, it was quite surprising. Its sport setting, if you like, is totally different to what its appearance is. You don't expect a car to look like it does to have the, the, the punch that it does. So, In fact, when we were taken for the drive today, I forgot to put it into uh, sport mode and thought I was in sport mode. So I was pretty impressed with it. And when we got close to our destination, I then flicked it into sport mode and realised, wow, this thing's got some serious poke. So people may laugh at you at the lights, but in many cases you can be first to the speed limit ahead of the others. How good is the space in the car? Evan, who is above average in size, did not have high expectations. 
It was a pleasant surprise. It was like the TARDIS inside. I couldn't get over how much space there was, particularly in the back. It's a bit of a test I've done over many years. I set a car up so I can drive it. Then I immediately get into the back seat behind me. So we'll have two, let's say, um, substantial people getting in the car. And uh, I had plenty of leg room. I didn't touch the back, the back of the front seat. It was incredible. The interior has good digital screens, but very few tactile controls. There are just four toggle switches below the center infotainment screen. The screen in front of the driver in daylight mode has a strong white background and some of the symbols are in very difficult to see colors, such as pale green. You don't press a start button when you get in. It detects that you are there and turns itself on like the Polestar. There is a button down on the right-hand side of the dashboard to the right of the steering wheel, which turns the vehicle off once you understand what the symbol means. The difficult thing was that I couldn't then work out how to turn the vehicle back on without getting out, locking the car, walking away, and then coming back to go through the whole process again. We will do a longer review soon, where I hope I might be able to discover a shortcut to that, certainly for an electric vehicle. Electric vehicles are clearly making their presence felt in revitalising small passenger car sales for those who can afford a more upmarket model at the moment. But if battery technology continues the trend of reducing costs, we may well see a revitalization of the passenger car market. You're listening to Overdrive. From its very conception right through to its part building, the UK has had its second stage of high-speed rail, the HS2, has certainly been controversial. Now, we're not here to say whether it's absolutely right or absolutely wrong, but it's an interesting exercise, a very expensive project, which could have great impacts or not on the structure of the UK, and in this case, particularly for areas north of London. Now, Des Dent is an international expert in transport planning, now retired, who had the opportunity to watch the parliamentary debate about the HS2 in the UK, but perhaps not for the best of reasons. There are many ideas, thoughts and opinions being thrown about, but is there an adequate and appropriate process to judge their veracity? And can we ever really know the impact of a large infrastructure project? Des joins us on the line now. Des, why did you get the chance to watch the parliamentary debate? Uh, well, I was visiting UK and I was in Winchester and I got the flu. So I couldn't go out. So I spent the time, I looked, turned the TV on and there was this debate. So it went on for quite a few days. So I, it kept me busy watching that. I might have helped you go to sleep, did it? <laughs> no, it was riveting, most of it. It did start out with, and I've read the transcripts, which you very, very kindly sent me a link to. It started out with some good, perhaps reasons or not, to build it. But then it did tend to degenerate into vague generalities or tit-for-tat calling. Would that be a fair reflection? Oh, yes. It was a typical parliamentary debate, you know, one side and the other. There were some historic ideas, wasn't there? England was built, the UK was built on the railway, so therefore we've got to keep going. 
that's not really a very good reason to continue in the future, is it? There might be other good reasons, but that's not one of them. No, no. I think the main reason was everyone else had a high-speed train. Why didn't we? <laughs> that's a classic type of thing, which doesn't get down to would it really work. One, one of the arguments was that the south of London and generally south of UK was doing better than the north, so the north needed some revitalisation. We think that high-speed rail will do it. Do we really understand whether it will or not? Well, that's the thing that impressed me most about the debate because the conventional wisdom was that because the North is depressed and if we build this line up there, everyone will rush up there and it will run really well. But, of course, when the people started to say that because London is such a big attractor, if we build this high-speed train, everyone will get on the train from the North and come down to London and it'll further depress the North. So the argument of improving the North didn't seem to be that strong. It's very important to consider the unintended consequences uh, or, or understand what might happen. I think that a very fast train, which costs squillions of dollars, if its main reason is to help long-distance commuting, I doubt whether then that's really a value to the whole community. Well, that's right. I think a lot of the high-speed trains, a lot of the benefit is that uh, the intermediate trains can stop and uh, they can, you know, connect communities. And I think that's that's part of the, the deal. Ah, that's an interesting concept, isn't it? So you're not just serving the people, possibly the richer people who get on the train and can commute into the centre of London. You're actually having a, a, a domino effect to other people, including and particularly local communities. With all the arguments in Australia about the high-speed train, I remember the strong one was that you can't just run it from A to B. You've got to have intermediate stops. And although the main trains mightn't stop, you've still got to have a lot of other trains that'll connect communities. And that's the big deal. There is, and also, you know, there was a lot of uh, politics in that. One of the comments was, well, we approved the cross London rail tunnel. So if it's good for them, we have to have it too. Again, more politics than reality. Well, I think the motivation for the Crossrail, which I've been, as I've been to London a few times, a few years, I watch very carefully that construction there, and, and I will always stay in Paddington area. I came to the conclusion that it was absolutely necessary because of the old train termini didn't really connect to the underground correctly. So I think the uh, Crossrail is a totally different kettle of fish to the high speed train. Which is important. It's a different kettle of fish. And so you can't say that because you've got one, you've got to have the other or vice versa. Maybe you do need most. most. One of the biggest values, so-called values of the High Speed 2, HS2, was over 50% of the $20 billion return was claimed to be travel time savings. That's a bit fraught, isn't it? Yes. You see, they said it was going to come into the Euston station but that's since been revived, and now it only goes to Old Oak, and you've got to catch a, a, another train to get into London. So the time saving of the whole thing is totally in doubt now. The assumption was that if you're sitting on the train, then that's absolutely useless time. Well, times have changed that with the internet and things, haven't they? Well, people use the train for their most effective work now with their Wi-Fi. So you can't say that's wasted time on a train. So. 
when you do the calculations of value of time, it's uh, got to be all changed in the transport models. Yeah, yeah. We've got to be aware of an evolving environment. You know, our trip, say, Sydney to Melbourne is at the moment 11 or 12 hours on the train, which is too long. But you don't necessarily have to make it three hours. The problem with it at the moment, among other things, is there's no PowerPoints on the train to keep your computer charged. Is that right? I haven't been on a train for a long time, so I wouldn't know. But I think you've only got to stand at Tokyo Station and uh, watch the trains there to realise that, you know, one goes, I think, every seven or eight minutes on a high-speed train. And, you know, a high-speed train between Sydney and Melbourne would be just a nonsense. You worked on, was it uh, in the Philippines, you worked on uh, some light rail and you did, I think you would say, guess a pretty high uh, usage, but you weren't sure for an interesting factor. Yes, we modelled the the first light rail that went through Manila, it was 15 kilometres through the CBD, and they were going to build it at grade, and I managed to convince the minister at the time that we needed to elevate it, which cost another $700 million from I got into a lot of trouble from the World Bank, but we couldn't, at the end of the day, figure out on the transport modelling whether the Filipinos would walk up the stairs in on such hot days for the train. So it became very problematical, the transport planning estimates. The point about raising it, of course, is to give it pure priority. It's not whether it's necessarily just whether it's on rail or not, it's whether it's not getting conflicted with a whole pile of other traffic. And, and I presume you were saying at ground level would have been, well, to say the least, a catastrophe? Well, I came in after, dare I say it, some British consultants had done a study on it and they had a, a overpasses at every intersection. So it went up and down. And so I sort of said to the minister, look, everyone's going to get seasick going up and down <laughs> on these things. And we managed to convince him to build it an elevated. And now they've got, I think, something like 100 kilometres of elevated train. It's been an unmitigated success. You could never run it at grade. I find that fascinating. The interesting point is that you are talking about things like the comfort of passengers and so on as a key elements. It's not just a fancy planning of drawing a red line on here where we're going to have capacity it's other factors as well that we have to be considered about. The thing about the HS2 in the UK was they talked about going to the north. But as one politician said, the north is not just one spot. It's in fact three regions up there. And you have to be very careful that you're not just serving a very narrow part of the market, a gold-plated solution, but for very few people. Well, you see the three legs of that uh, high-speed train I think it was going further north to Manchester and it was going to the to the east. And, of course, they got cancelled, so they've now just gone to Birmingham. So I must confess I'm not too sure what the whole thing will be is going to Birmingham. They're still building it, aren't they? Yeah, yes, but it's uh, not going... And, uh, and the, the ent- exit, entry to, Mel- to London is still not uh, clear because they haven't been able to get the land and all the permissions to go into Euston, of which uh, a lot of the underground is already built there for it, but they can't get access to it. So it's going to have to be in a huge underground tunnel now. So uh, I don't know. I I must say I don't know the technical aspects of it all, but I know it's stopping outside of London and at a place called Old Oak. I think the 
speed could be increased enormously, but not high speed. Ah, that's yeah. We can talk about fast trains and very fast trains. Yeah. If the trip to Melbourne was eight hours, yeah. and I had enough comfort to be able to plug in and do some calls and do some other things, that'd be fine in many ways. Or or maybe Sydney to Newcastle was an hour rather than two hours of twisting railway. Maybe straighten out a bit of it without necessarily going to the super fast hypersonic rail speeds. Yes, well, you see, in the Virgin uh, trains in England, uh, they run all up the central spine there to Manchester, Derby, Manchester for... And I think they're 180, 220 k's, and they and they run on the ordinary track, and they're perfectly all right, and they're quite fast. <laughs> Des, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, David. Uh, good luck. Bye. And that's Des Dent, who is an international expert, now retired, but some great thoughts on transport planning that we have both here and overseas. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Evan Jones, Fred Brain, Des Dent, Bruce Potter and Mark Wesley for their help with this program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or link to the socials and podcasts. Look for Cars, Transport, Culture. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.